Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Legal Brief. I'm Misty Maris. I'm joined by my executive producer, Lauren Mincer-Clark. Hi, guys. And today, Lauren, we are going to do a roundup of updates on a bunch of the stories and trials that we've been covering. Also, we're going to be doing a special episode next week where we look at all of the huge trials that are going to be going down in 2020. Too. Not only yes. that, so many stories with upcoming hearings and all sorts of other proceedings, all these true crime stories that it's all happening in the beginning of this year. Oh, my so God. We it, have a lot to cover. It's going to be a huge year, especially in the world of true crime. And a lot of the stories that a lot of people are going to remember are kind of coming back up, you know, like Scott Peterson. Um, and that was the uh, the case where the man who was charged with murdering his pregnant wife, Lacey, and his unborn baby on Christmas Eve back in 2002. Um, Pam Hupp, the woman who was charged with murdering her best friend and setting up her best friend's husband to take up the fall. Her case is going to trial. Kristen smart which is a cold case of the missing student um who she actually was a student here at cal poly um here in california went missing in 1996 um her the long person of interest had been arrested that trial is coming up um so i and of course missy the ongoing updates with alec baldwin johnny depp things like that so we've got lots going on oh so many cases and speaking of right around the corner and old names that keep cropping up that we keep hearing more and more about. Let's talk about Scott Peterson, who you mentioned right in the beginning. So Scott Peterson, I mean, he was convicted. This has been years and years and years. It's over. It's like 20 years since his conviction, right? Mm hmm. Absolutely. And that's and he was and what the crazy thing is, is that he was actually sentenced to death um, after he was convicted for murdering his pregnant wife and unborn baby um, back in 2002. He was sentenced to death, but just recently was that was reversed and he was resentenced to just life without the possibility of parole. However, something has just come up, which is very much related to the Glean Maxwell case, which we're going to talk about today. And that's why we wanted to bring this up, because it's almost the identical issue that's now come up um, because he wants a whole he wants the whole conviction overturned because of this juror number seven issue tell us about that misty yeah absolutely lauren so he's had a couple of i would call them legal victories since mm-hmm. he had been convicted, shocking as you said yes and who would have thought this would continue he would he would be a continued presence and we'd have so many proceedings relating to Scott Peterson. But as you said, Lauren, his his death sentence conviction was overturned. Now he's serving life in prison. But in addition to that, his lawyers are seeking a whole new trial. Mm-hmm. And they say that if he were to have a new trial, that there is a whole slew of new evidence that they'll be presenting. So let's talk about whether or not that could actually happen in this case, in the case of Scott Peterson, the defense team is claiming that there was juror misconduct. So a juror named Rochelle Neese, who you said it, Lauren, juror number seven, the defense said that she was not truthful about details in her personal life when she was filling out her juror questionnaire and was questioned in voir dire during jury selection in the Scott Peterson case. Now, let me remind everybody a little bit about Rochelle Neese. And Lauren, I know you and I have been covering uh, we've been covering this case since the news broke that Scott Peterson may be getting a new trial right. so as a possibility. Shocking news then. Yep. Another trial. Exactly. But Rochelle Neese was not a 
quiet, low-key juror. After Scott Peterson was convicted, she basically went on a media tour. She spoke out very, very uh, verbally, right? Mm -hmm. She talked about how she was happy that he was convicted. She even wrote a book about her experience as a juror. Yeah, and so she very, very clearly was out there in the media talking about the case and talking about the decision to convict. Well, the defense is saying that Rochelle Neese committed what's called prejudicial misconduct by failing to disclose that she was the victim of domestic violence when she was pregnant. They say that if she had provided that truthful information during jury selection that she potentially wouldn't have, would have never been on the jury because there would have been at least a follow-up. There would have been more mm-hmm. questions to her about whether or not she could be impartial to serve on the jury. So it, the, the facts in this case with respect to Rochelle Neese are actually out of control because she said she had never been the victim of a domestic violence issue. Meanwhile, she had sought a restraining order. She had actually right. testified in a proceeding where she said she had never been a part of, she had never testified before. She had never been a part of a proceeding on her juror questionnaire. And what we've learned now, which will most certainly be the evidence that the defense is going to present in furtherance of seeking a new trial, is that those occurrences, they weren't, you know, 10 years in her past when she was filling out this questionnaire. They were like a year or two before. Right. She was sitting on that jury. So the question is, did she intentionally lie? Uh, the defense argument is that not only did she intentionally lie, she wanted to get on that jury because she wanted to get Scott Peterson convicted. Not only are they relying on the fact that she was not truthful objectively. I mean, she was involved in those proceedings. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's she the, the juror questionnaire was not true. What she responded was not true. The question is, was that on purpose for the purpose of her getting on this jury to convict him? And in order to uh, further that argument, the defense is looking at many of the statements she made after the fact, after Scott Peterson was convicted. She was very fervent that he, you know, he should have been convicted, that he was guilty. That's all fine. That could have nothing to do with her past. That could have nothing to do with. Right. Which she's actually said. Right. And she said multiple times that it's a not. But right. It is right. a question. That's the that's what the defense is arguing. The defense mm. is, is taking it a step further. So then the standard in a, a in a juror misconduct case is whether or not not only was there juror misconduct, but did it matter? And in the Scott Peterson case, certainly relevant to the inquiry of any juror would be whether or not they were a victim of domestic violence. That's largely what the case was about. So again, just Lauren, I want to make sure our audience understands that you and I have covered a lot of jury selections and we've, we've, you know, dove into especially Mm -hmm. high profile cases. I mean, Scott Peterson, this was like in the heart of, oh my gosh, where these trials became something that everybody was watching watching. from beginning to end, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that was the type of case that all eyes were on that courtroom and it was a very, very high profile case. And it was a case where it was difficult to get impartial jurors because many people had made 
predeterminations. Uh, I mean, because it, it was it was it was national news, and that it wasn't you know it happens in the Bay Area, but this was heard. It was nationwide, Christmas Eve, all of the details. It was especially at that time, like you said, where uh, court TV was becoming the stuff that we were watching twenty four seven. Yeah, and remember, Lacey Peterson was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, juror number seven, again, just just to reiterate that she had sought a restraining order from her boyfriend, from her boyfriend's, boyfriend's ex. ex. So, so, yes, yes. Was her boyfriend's ex mm-hmm. saying that their unborn baby could be harmed. So it's, it's very, it's very, very on point and very relevant to the facts of the Peterson case. So. Just so everybody understands in voir dire, um, and especially with high profile cases and selecting a juror, it's in the best interest of both the prosecution and the defense to have impartial juries. The reason is for issues like this. The verdict right. is the, the verdict is vulnerable. Right. So you the can't call it into question. Vulnerable. Yes. Mm-hmm. If there are issues in that process, if there are uh, untruths in that process, if there is juror misconduct, then the verdict is vulnerable to reversal. And that means a whole new trial. So the cornerstone of our criminal justice system is a fair trial. Every person is entitled to a fair trial, which the key to that is an impartial jury. And when we say impartial jury, it doesn't mean that a juror doesn't come with their own experiences. It doesn't mean that a juror doesn't know or hasn't heard of the case or know some facts from just uh, seeing it in the news or seeing it in the media. It means that during that questioning, that the both sides have the opportunity to ask questions to decide whether or not that person, regardless of their personal experiences or regardless of what they may know about the case, can sit in that jury box and approach the case with with a fresh perspective and only take what comes into the courtroom into consideration and to be fair and impartial in that decision based on the evidence in court. And one yeah. way to do that is to have these jury questionnaires at the outset. And that helps both the prosecution and the defense make determinations about who's ultimately going to sit on that jury. So it starts with the questionnaire then the jurors, are, many or many will be discounted after the questionnaires, right? Because both sides get what's called preemptory challenges, meaning that they can say, you know, this jury, it, there's, there's, they're, they're, we don't believe they're going to be uh, impartial, get rid of those jurors. Then you get a pool that goes into the courtroom and either the judges or the lawyers have the opportunity to ask them follow-up questions, which usually stem from their responses. Mm-hmm. So Lauren, as you can see, in order for that to be a process that is just and fair and leads to that impartial jury, step one is being truthful on that questionnaire. Right. Well, and so it's just why I think that this is so crazy is because not only is this going on exactly right now, because that tr- hearing is coming up in February, this is the exact thing that has just been brought up in the Glenn Maxwell case, because Obviously, we know that she had her, the conviction came through. She was found guilty on five of the six federal counts. However, this very issue just came up. Can you talk about this? Yes, it's it's almost a mirror image it, of what's going crazy. on. Crazy, yes, it really is. Except Peterson, this is all played out in the appellate process. There's been a lot of papers filed, been a lot of motion practice, all culminating in a hearing that's scheduled to 
move forward at the end of February to dig into whether or not there was this prejudicial misconduct that we were just talking about in the Peterson case, taking years and years and years. With Ghislaine Maxwell, it happened almost instantaneously. I mean, the verdict came down, right? (laughs) She's found guilty of five of the six charges. So originally, she would have been facing 70 years because she was acquitted on one one of the charges relating to enticing a minor to travel. Uh, Now she's down to uh, 60-ish years, maybe 60, 65 years. Mm -hmm. And normally, a maximum, okay? So normally she would be waiting for her sentencing hearing and the judge would be making a determination about about hearing aggravating and mitigating factors and deciding how long her sentence was going to be. Would the time be served concurrently or consecutively? All of those questions would be what the both sides are focused on, you know, getting all that information in, preparing for that penalty hearing. Well, that's not what's happening right now because right after the verdict comes down, there is a juror who speaks out to Mm -hmm. the public who does an interview and... Which is allowed, obviously. Which is allowed, yep. But allowed. jurors are allowed after, during the trial, mm-hmm. they can't speak. They're not even supposed to be speaking to their, you know, husbands or wives or partners about mm-hmm. about the trial. They're not supposed to watch news. They're not supposed to read about it. They're not supposed to be speaking to anybody, except in that juror room when they're right. doing deliberations. But after a trial, oftentimes. You hear jurors speaking out and as lawyers and as legal analysts and, and Lauren in our world as true because uh, we because we cover true crime stories. Yes. We love to hear why jurors decided. Absolutely. We, we want to know. We want to be in their heads. Mm-hmm. I'm a litigator. I love yes. talking to, to jurors after trial because you find out, gosh, oh, sometimes you find out something that we were so hyper focused on that we where it thought would be the linchpin in our case, the jurors didn't even care. Didn't about even that. care. Another, <laughs> another factor that we thought right. was ancillary. So it's very, it's a learning experience mm-hmm. for even the most seasoned trial attorney. So everybody, everybody wants to hear from the jurors. But in this case, the juror came out and said that he used his past, that he was a victim of sexual abuse as a child. And he used his past experience to convince other jurors to believe Maxwell's accusers. So this is Mm. a heavy statement. So number one, the juror comes out and says that he was a victim of sexual abuse. And not only was he a victim of sexual abuse, but he used his personal experience to convince other jurors who were skeptical of the accusers who took the stand in the Maxwell case uh, and they were skeptical be due to those inconsistencies and gaps and all of all of those arguments that the defense raised remember the jury the jury had asked to hear from the defense expert on memory yeah. yes. during deliberations so there were jurors who were skeptical and this this juror juror number 50 came out and said that he used his own personal experience to convince others to believe the Maxwell accusers. Now, just to remind everybody, the, the, the this case entirely hinged mm-hmm. on the testimony of the four women that came forward Correct. and testified in the case. Mm-hmm. That was the prosecution's whole case. The Maxwell, her defense hinged on 
the credibility of those witnesses. And the defense went very strongly in cross-examination. The defense had an expert witness testify about memory. The defense questioned the memories and the motivations, given some very large civil remedies and monetary uh, payments that were made by the Epstein Fund. So mm. it is central to the defense argument. The, the the credibility of these witnesses was was central to the defense. So, look, juror number 50 comes out and then actually a second juror comes out and right. says that they were a victim of sexual abuse. And they also used that experience in the jury room. Look, here's the way that this works. Whether or not the these two jurors, juror number 50, this other juror, but 50 specifically, because he, you know, he really said that he was like in 12 angry men that's the way i'm picturing it right they yes yes one juror convincing others yes to believe mm-hmm. these women which okay right fine I'm... all good however however we go back to this questionnaire we go back to the question of the jury right so he, he was abused as a child that would not have automatically disqualified him from serving on the jury. right but the defense would have almost certainly Mm-hmm. used one of its challenges to defend to, to dismiss him you know depending mm-hmm. on questions that were raised in voir dire they would have the opportunity yes. to do that right so if he responds yes to this question on the jury questionnaire that's okay as we just said it's not like an automatic disqualification in fact in some cases people that have personal experiences as long right. as they mm-hmm. say that they can put them aside and and be objective in that courtroom, jurors are supposed to come in with personal experiences. That's all part of having a fair jury. Right. A jury of right. Peers, that everybody comes from different perspectives. Everybody comes from different life experiences. Such a great You're not point. supposed to forget it. You don't leave it all at the door. You're not supposed yes. to forget that stuff. In fact, the instructions say, use your common sense. You know, use, <laughs> Such a great point. Yep. Yeah, exactly. You're right. So, but the question is, What would have happened during that voir dire and interview process that takes place in open court? So, look, there would have been questions about it. No doubt. No doubt. Any defense lawyer would see that response and 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 would the the door would be open for the judge to ask questions specifically about that and whether or not this person could be impartial. So let me tell you a little bit about the juror questionnaire and Maxwell, because. Obviously, Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, all of this. This is an international story. Forget national. It's right. an international story. It is absolutely a top story in the headlines. I mean, it has been. It has been. been following it for years now. Years. And there's been so many twists and turns. And there's been so much mm-hmm. information that has come to light. And all eyes were on this trial. So the process of getting a fair jury with a highly, highly publicized case like this, especially with the connection to Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, who is pretty much objectively seen as a monster across the board. There's not a lot of Epstein sympathizers out there, right? I mean, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying there's not a whole heck of a lot of them, right? Correct. And getting a fair jury is an incredibly difficult task. So the first step here was a 30-page, 50-question survey. Okay. And the answers to the questionnaires, these were all sealed. And the jurors' names have not been made public. So right now we don't even know whether or not jury juror number fifty revealed this that he was abused and 
whether or not he'd been the victim of sexual harassment or abuse. Well, Um, because let me ask you, because they're claiming that the jurors said that they like they flew through and they can't remember if they were asked uh, in the in the questionnaire. Right. Because they flew through it. Wasn't that what the claim was on their response? That's what he had said, that he flew through it and he didn't remember. Which is one issue, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I'll even, you know, you, those questionnaires, just so, just so everybody understands, it's not a casual endeavor, okay? They say in big, bold letters, underlined, they're sworn to provide truthful responses. Mm-hmm. The final page in the jury questionnaire, in fact, is like an affidavit. It's a declaration wow. that you sign that says, under the penalty of perjury, all of the answers are truthful to the best of my knowledge and belief. That's what they say. Right. Okay. So you are swearing under the penalty of perjury to the veracity of the answers in that questionnaire because that's how serious the jury selection process is. So while we don't know right now, because those questionnaires are sealed, whether or not this juror was truthful and we have his statement, oh, I don't know, I flew through it, which is probably the worst thing you could hear, right? Oh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the thing Some... is, you've got, you've got the, and, and just, to, just to make that comparison between juror number seven uh, Rochelle and the Scott Peterson case in here, you know, she says that it was an honest mistake. She's mm-hmm. being accused of specifically um, omitting that information purposefully to purposely. get on the jury, right? Right. Because she wanted to be on that jury mm-hmm. and that she lied intentionally. In this case, we have the juror saying, we, we don't, I don't think this is the same argument. I, I'm not sure that there's anyone saying that he lied intentionally. He certainly came out with this statement very um, easily yes. know, to the media right after. It's not as if this was something that he was concealing. Correct. It sounds like he just perhaps was, uh, not. I'm not even using this as in the legal form, but like maybe a little bit reckless, you know, didn't follow very clearly by his own words, didn't follow the instructions on the jury questionnaire, which says, read this, right? Read right. This. Right. Read these questions Ugh. and answer them truthfully and then affirm that you have answered them truthfully. So it's a problem. So we don't know. Maybe maybe he did answer it truthfully. However, there's a transcript of his voir dire, which two pieces to this. You got the jury questionnaire, right? You get mm-hmm. that first. The jury questionnaire is then used to select a pool of jurors that will come in who will be questioned. In this case, it was in New York federal court. In federal court, the judge questions the jurors. In some other jurisdictions, the lawyers question the jurors, but here the judge questions. And in the transcript of his voir dire, juror number 50, he's not asked about the sexual abuse question. Mm-hmm. That tells me pretty solidly, unless somebody really made a mistake, which I don't think you do in jury selection right. on of this, this magnitude. type of profile case, right, mm-hmm. that the disclosure had not been made. That, that would be my best guess because there is no way that somebody answers yes to that question. I have been a victim of abuse in a case where the central issue of the case is sexual abuse. Right. And there's no follow-up. Not, nope. Right. So, so that's the, that's where the, that's the inquiry right now. So in an, so un- what all the, what could all this mean? Right. Well, this could mean that the verdict is actually overturned and Maxwell gets a new trial. 
So in an unusual, this is an unusual situation, I will say, because after this information came out and then a second juror speaks out and says they were a victim too. So now the inquiry is twofold, right? Right. And I told you before, in relation to Scott Peterson, the standard is prejudicial. Is it, is it jury misconduct? And then does it matter? So those are the two inquiries, right? First of all, is it jury misconduct? And Jury misconduct doesn't necessarily have to be an intentional lie. In this particular case, jury misconduct can can be a violation of the court rules. It can be failure to abide by jury instructions. So the argument here is, by Juror 50's own words, provided that he says this you know, moving forward as this issues delve as they delve into this issue, that his own words that he flew through the questionnaire. If he did answer no to that question. I would say there's a very strong argument that he violated the rules, right? Right. Because the questionnaire is very specific on what's expected. Uh, You're expected mm -hmm. to answer it truthfully under the penalty of perjury. So the the misconduct piece, that's that piece. Then the second part is, does it matter? And here, in the Maxwell case, the credibility of the alleged victims, the four women that testified, Mm -hmm. was the central issue to the defense. It was the whole defense. For the most part. Right. And so, yeah, it was most it definitely material, especially since this juror said that he used his personal experience, the, the personal experience that appears to have not been disclosed to convince other jurors to believe them, to believe the victim. So it's a two it's a twofold inquiry. Um, what was unusual in this case is right after this interview hit the hit the news. And I mean, the, it, this spread like wildfire, right? It was like, right. Yeah, it was this interview that was then picked up by every national news media. I was working on something else and I saw the headline and I, I was like, wait, I'm sorry, what happened? Me too. I was right. the exact same thing. <laughs> um, the But the, the, the prosecution, so the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a letter almost immediately saying that this issue needs to be looked into. So mm. it, it, the defense wasn't the first to, to file. Right. The prosecutors were. And they said, we got to look into this issue. And they asked the judge for a hearing um, to take place next month, a hearing that will be very similar to what we would expect wow. in the Scott Peterson hearing. So the next day, the defense, or a day or two later, the defense files a similar letter saying they are seeking a mistrial. They are seeking for reversal of the verdict and a new trial because of very clear prejudice. Uh, by virtue of juror number 50 statement and then also referencing the second juror that came out and they are not only asking for a hearing where juror number 50 and this other juror presumably will testify under oath so they will be questioned that's the way this goes down so there's going to be a hearing and the juror will be questioned and the questions will revolve around the responses to that questionnaire and what happened in the jury room Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the inqu- and the judge will make a determination about whether or not there was misconduct and whether or not it mattered. And the judge will decide whether or not to reverse the conviction. Um, the defense attorney actually is asking for all of the jurors to be at this hearing and all of the jurors to potentially testify. Oh, so it's it's a, it's serious business. This is going to so, be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal. The prosecution wants this to be a court only inquiry, meaning. Um, you know, the judge's eyes only, mm-hmm. right? So no reporters, right. no pool reporters, no one in there. 
the federal court's very strict. They, I could see them doing that. It's called in okay. just before the judge. We'll see what happens. I um, was going to ask what you think. Okay. Yeah, think. there's obviously okay. public interest in it. And so obviously. Uh, the, both of just those a little weighed. But there is one thing, especially if the jury verdict is preserved. And I think this would be the argument that the prosecutors would make. Defense, the defense attorney would more likely than not say we want transparency. We would we want there to be public react. You know, you know, they want the public to see, especially when juror misconduct, a very, very serious issue is out there. Mm-hmm. But, but there's something about this. This what's the sake, the sacredness of what happens in that jury room. Right. 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 So of that course. Would be the argument of uh, for the prosecution to keep it just before the judge, uh, keep all external influences out of it. But um in any case, so now the judge has said, brief it. So right now, both right. sides have okay. been directed to do, you know, do their legal research, find on point cases, talk about all of the legal arguments for each side, submit those briefs, and, and then there'll probably be a hearing. So that the judge that sat through that trial will make a determination about whether or not to scrap that verdict and say all right new trial for maxwell so that that's the how high the stakes are if the judge decides that there was not prejudicial misconduct that either even if there was misconduct it didn't matter right okay or or that that the juror the juror's actions didn't rise to the level of misconduct and and the other piece is one of the issues that the judge has asked both sides to write about in these briefs is whether or not this person there would have been a basis for a preemptory challenge so it's it's going back to nuts and bolts it's almost like a law school assignment right it, it's right. really that meticulous so all of that's going to happen um wow. if the judge decides that the verdict stands then it will still be an issue on appeal so there's two different mechanisms they're moving under this federal rule which allows motions for mistrial after the verdict has been rendered and that goes back to the original judge what they could also do if the judge says verdict stands then we would move forward to sentencing and we would see the defense raise this issue again on appeal which could put us in Mm. like a peterson situation where we don't see a result on it for you know years down the road going through the appellate process so there's two bites of the apple here for the defense team Wow. If they're not uh-huh. successful here, they still preserve they the still issue have. for a Yeah. A lot, a lot going on. There's a, a lot, lot going on. on. And well, and also, but, but what's crazy is that actually, and you know, a parting off from this is that the Glenn Maxwell case also is still coming up in the news relating to Prince Andrew because just yesterday, one of the victims um, from the Maxwell case um, did an interview with, uh, with Daily Mail and actually said that she remembers Virginia Guffrey um, telling her about meeting Prince Andrew back in 2001. She actually brought up that she remembers the picture in the pink tank top that we've all kind of seen come up, obviously, in the news as that has come on. So uh, tell me what impact this kind of has. Uh, I, you know, it's so it's all of these stories are so interrelated. It, right. And it's all coming out at the same time, which makes sense because we're mm-hmm. on the heels of Maxwell. We right. got the Maxwell verdict in peril, really in peril, right. because yes. of potential juror misconduct. And now we see one of the victims who was central in convicting Maxwell move forward talking about uh, Prince Andrew, which we know this has been a lingering issue. I mean, Lauren, I think that two years ago, because I know it was before COVID, because you and I were actually in studio together, which we have not been. 
since COVID. We talked yes. about Prince Andrew and whether that, or not it was. he could be extradited and all of this stuff. It's been so yes. crazy. And so how it's long? been a while now that, that all these issues have been going on. But um, so this, she came forward and she provided what would be, and this is Carolyn. They're not using their, her, their real names. Um, they're, they're at, they're using names because they were um, uh, minors at the time of the abuse. Mm-hmm. So Carolyn, victim, comes forward and provides what would be evidence to corroborate Virginia Gouffray's story. So as a reminder, Virginia Gouffray has a civil case mm-hmm. pending against Prince Andrew for alleged sexual assault that she claims took place when she was 17 and had been trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein to Prince Andrew. So this case is pending in a New York federal court. Um, And this all fits together. So there's actually been a hearing just a a week or two ago, you know, right? Just just recently on the Prince Andrew case, because Prince Andrew is seeking to have Virginia Gouffray's claims dismissed. And he's relying on three arguments. The first is that um, that the complaint is not specific and not sufficient to raise a claim against him under the law. Common defense motion that's made when a complaint is filed, they say it doesn't, it lacks specificity specificity it's conclusory it's vague the whole purpose of a complaint is to put somebody on notice as to the allegations against them the judge actually at the hearing used the words that dog does not hunt i'm not going to be <laughs> agreeing with your argument so nice nice try Got, yep, good that effort. argument yep. is out but no um, the next argument is based on the law under which Gouffray is seeking to hold Prince Andrew liable. And I just want to make sure that everybody understands because we're kind of bopping back and forth between Maxwell and this case against Prince Andrew. The Maxwell case is a criminal case. So she's mm-hmm. facing time in prison. The case against Prince Andrew is a civil case. It's about monetary relief for damages. So two different. Yes. Two different courts, Very two important. different legal standards. Uh, cases in the criminal system have to be proved what's called beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so the highest standard under the law, presumed innocent until proven guilty. Um, in Prince Andrew's case, it's a civil case. It has to be proved by what's called a preponderance of the evidence. Preponderance of the evidence means you 51% believe it. So a little more than half. So it's a much lower standard. Um, but the burden to prove the case is on the plaintiff. So Gouffray has to prove her case. That's why the, the statement made by Carolyn Lauren could be mm-hmm. very revel. Re- Revelant, relevant, relevant, excuse relevant. me, <laughs> excuse me. It's not even early in the morning, but relevant, <laughs> relevant to the civil case because it would corroborate Gouffray's uh, allegations. So this case is interesting because the second legal argument, just to circle back into that, it's brought under a new statute in New York called the Child Victims Act. Mm-hmm. The Child Victims Act allows for people who were victims of sexual abuse when they were minors to bring cases against their abusers or you know in some cases it's organizations like there's cases against uh the boy scouts of america is probably one of the biggest cases here a lot of people are facing claims under these 
uh, under this statute because it extended the statute of limitations mm. beyond what would normally have been time barred. And it gave a limited window of time for people to bring the claims. So at first it was only a year, but that time frame got extended due to COVID. And it COVID. actually just closed mm. this past summer. So, okay, you know, I, I had the statistic um, before, but I mean, there were like tens of tens of thousands of cases filed wow. the statute. So there's been a lot of challenges because the statute is new. And some of the cases that are being that are brought under the statute happened so long ago that defendants have made the argument, as Prince Andrew did in, in his case, that it's actually unconstitutional because it's so unduly prejudicial since there's been such a time lapse since the alleged incident occurred that it's almost impossible to defend meaning that there's not witnesses there's not documentation there's you know the, there's people's memories have faded many of the people involved in these cases are are deceased, deceased. so there's a yeah. whole host of issues relating to it okay so prince andrew moved on that ground as well which i would have expected because it is a common argument made with um defending entities or individuals under the statute I will say the cases that have been coming out of in New York um, have found that it does pass muster and that the cases can go on. Mm -hmm. So as a whole, the statute hasn't been thrown out. That's not to say it won't continue to be challenged and somewhere down the road there might be a different result because it is so new. But as right. of now, I wouldn't expect him to be successful on that particular legal argument, although it was correct that he raised it and it could be an appellate issue. Now, the third is the most interesting argument, and it's something that there have been rumblings and whisperings of and that his team had said exonerates him and that this case has to be thrown out. But now we have more information. So what Prince Andrew's argument that is at issue right now that the judge is going to have to decide whether or not the case can go forward, that's what we're, where we are, is that back in 2009... Gouffre settled a civil case with Epstein for five hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Okay, and Prince Andrew argued that he was released in that settlement agreement, meaning that Gouffre agreed in exchange for the money not to bring ah. a case against mm -hmm. him. So his okay. lawyers had said he's in there. It says royalty. The settlement agreement says that royalty is is released and so no claims can be brought in the future and he's got to be out of this case however the 12 page agreement has been made public and uh -huh. it does not specifically say prince andrew's name and it does not specifically say royalty hmm. so his lawyers are arguing that the agreement relinquished any rights of gouffre to sue him because there is language in the agreement that says p potential defendants are released. So I'm literally in quotes, potential defendants. So huh. the settlement related to a Florida state case. Prince Andrew was not a party to the case. Gouffre in the agreement specifically, I'm going to read the language verbatim, agrees to release, acquit, satisfy, and forever dis discharge Epstein and any other person or entity who could have been included as a potential defendant. More vague language mm -hmm. I have not seen. <laughs> it is uh, extraordinarily that, vague. That just okay. sounds like everybody, anyone. Yeah. It's, it's, and obviously from a 
point from the point of view of what's conscionable. So there's mm-hmm. there's an argument that a settlement ah. is not that a contract. It's contract settlement agreement is a contract, Lauren. That it, that's right. what it is. It's a contract. So the principles of contract law apply, and the principles of contract law say. The first thing we look at is the four corners of the contract. We don't consider anything else. What is the language? What did these two parties agree to? And the two parties can agree to almost anything unless it reaches the level of what's considered unconscionable, meaning that there was there wasn't equal bargaining power. So mm, like a minor, okay. somebody's a minor when they entered. There's a lot of different reasons why it could be. Um, but in this case, potential defendant is just a very, very ambiguous term. So Prince Andrew argued that he falls under it because it's it, it he could have been sued. He you know he was implicated that Epstein trafficked Gouffre to Prince Andrew. That's the allegation, mm-hmm. and that he could have been a part of right. that lawsuit. Now her lawyers say that first of all, Prince Andrew wouldn't have been subject to jurisdiction in Florida at the time that ah. he was not named as a party and that the release and settlement agreement related to the trafficking did not did not specifically identify those who she, to whom she had been trafficked. Trafic. Okay, so ah. these are all, the, okay. all of the very technical legal contract <sighs> arguments that mm-hmm. are going on right now. Um and, you know, her lawyer said that this settlement agreement, it's it's irrelevant to the case against Prince Andrew. It's completely right. irrelevant. So right. um, right. in any case, so that's really the issue that stands before the court. And the judge has to make a decision about whether or not the case presses forward. Uh, I don't you know, I don't know which way it's going to go because it is so dependent on the language of the contract. And mm. uh, as the judge pointed out, it's it's a unique situation because the two parties to the contract are Gouffre and Epstein. And only one of those people is still alive. Correct. So uh-huh. it's, it's what did they agree to and who was contemplated in contract law it's called the meeting of the minds you have to both agree on who is encompassed under that language so it's uh definitely a very very technical legal argument nuanced legal issues involved and the judge is going to make a decision the only sort of read the tea leaves you know what's the what what way might this go i would say what there do you was, think yeah I, I, just knowing um federal courts Mm-hmm. There's a very, very, very strict schedule that goes along that goes along in a civil case. Uh, it's a discovery schedule. So in a civil case, it's a little different than a criminal case. Um, but what happens is the complaint is filed. The other party answers. So we're pre we're before all that right now. So the other party answers, you know, generally denies the allegations. Then we engage in the process of discovery. And that's a longer process. So that's exchange of documents, information, depositions, depositions expert yep. witnesses. So mm-hmm. that process is okay. it takes the most time. Right. And then ultimately you go to trial unless the case settles somewhere along the way, which happens a lot. Um, in this case, the Prince Andrew's team had made a motion to stop the civil proceedings while these issues were being decided. So while the court is deciding whether or not the case moves forward, the civil proceedings, meaning the discovery process, would be what's called stayed, meaning everything's frozen. We don't have to do anything. 
because you don't uh, violate right. the time. You don't violate the time frames in federal court. You don't. It's right. It's, it's a big no no. That's it's strict. Yes. Yes. It's very very strict. The deadlines okay. yeah. are written in stone. Makes sense. Even during COVID, <laughs> federal court didn't really stop. So it was you know it's very very strict. The court refused to. The court refused to oh, stay. Oh, interesting. Discovery. Yeah, and that and look, that happens, and a lot of judges do that because it just could, the process keeps going. But I would say that if the court was leaning towards granting the motion and dismissing the case, they might have put they might, even a even a short a short even, pause, even not something. even staying it, just kicking the deadlines out a little bit further, so they're not interesting in March or April. Yeah, so. We will see what happens. Wow. And so that's that a lot going on. Yeah. There is a and, lot. And, and that's all ties. And he would have to testify in that case. So that's imagine such a big thing. Imagine. And would he open, you know, is he going to plead the fifth? Maybe look at, look at Bill Cosby, just a loop uh, in another case. So Bill Cosby settled a case. Um, and in his deposition, he testified. Remember, this was the whole issue. Right. He testified in a civil case and the district attorney at the time had agreed not to bring yes. charges against him, even though during his civil testimony, he had made admissions which could potentially be criminal. And when the district attorney was no longer there, he had not entered into a formal uh, prosecute. It wasn't a formal agreement or so the prosecutors in this case say that that case is actually also being challenged. So we'll keep an eye out for that one <laughs> right but um Whew. you know a criminal case moved forward so what would prince andrew say in a deposition I, i'm not uh -huh. sure he could and then that leads us back to <clears throat> maxwell where there's been a lot of fodder throughout this entire process would she provide information about others involved with epstein mm. i.e people people that federal the federal government might care about like a prince andrew would right. she exchange information um, so that perhaps she has leniency at sentencing. Uh, I don't know. Um, because that's all in limbo as we're talking about. All of this is going on at the exact same time. All in limbo. Wow. All in limbo. So now and she's been convicted. Even if she gets mm -hmm. a new trial, it's not that she's acquitted. No, she gets a, right. she, she sits for another criminal trial. So maybe all over she gets again. convicted, maybe she doesn't. But mm -hmm. she, now she's been convicted, there might be incentive if if there is information that she has, there may be incentive to share it. I don't know. She, I really thought at the outset of this case, especially after Epstein died, that she might provide information. And she, to our knowledge, she never did. I mean, right. Absolutely. That was the big thing for a long time. Public. Yeah. But right. To our knowledge, there was, you know, she, she sat for a trial and she faces what would be essentially her life, right? 60 years. Yep. Yep. If, if she got the maximum probably won't mm -hmm. but she did get the maximum but in any case all of these interrelated issues Chew. all of these cases to keep an eye on yes we will be following them all impacting each other so <laughs> we will and we'll be following all of those and a lot of the other ones that we mentioned at the top there's a lot of true crime stories that are going on right now and that are going to trial and we will be glued to them and bringing all of these updates we'll do a lot more of these roundups we'll try and hit on a couple of them at the same time so we can kind of keep everybody up to date as so many things are happening at the same time yeah, so keep an eye out for a new episode coming out next week. We will have all the updates on these cases and when they're moving forward. And, we, you know, it's going to be a big year for true crime. That's yes. For sure. Yes, it is. And I'm very excited about doing that with you. 
Yes, me too. Yay. Thank you all for <laughs> all right. listening. We appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you guys all soon.